Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, is a common diagnosis in children, very common, but more and more grown-ups are also being diagnosed with ADHD. And one clue that we have is that the prescribing of ADHD medications among adults has gone up significantly in the last few years. Still, if you weren't formally diagnosed as a child, you or someone you know and love may suspect that you have it. So this week we're asking, how do I know if I have undiagnosed adult ADHD? Hi, Ainsley. Welcome to The Dose. Thank you very much, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be talking to you, too. So so just off the cuff, how do adults react when you tell them they have ADHD? Surprisingly, adults often feel tremendous relief because they gain an understanding of what areas of their life have been responsible for their impairment. I've certainly had that experience of giving that diagnosis or other diagnoses and having a sense of relief. Just seeing them, they just relax and say, oh, good, this has a name. And now and now we can do battle with the name, which is why we, we have come to you to tap into your expertise. But before we do that, can you give us a hi, my name is, tell us what you do and where you do it. Just ad lib. My name is Dr. Ainsley Gray. I'm a focused primary care physician who has worked in the mental health field since the late 90s. I have a special interest in working with the diagnosis of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and have created a resource in Toronto that supports the lifespan intervention for providing not only assessment, but ongoing treatment. Let's start by getting some clarification. What is ADHD exactly? ADHD is a mental health diagnosis. People often think that you have to have the hyperactivity and impulsivity as well as the inattentiveness, but it can often present as just being what's classically talked about as being ADD without the hyperactivity. But it is a usually genetic presentation of individuals who are suffering from a combination of inattention, hyperactivity, restlessness. That inattention and hyperactivity can often be very subtle. And people say when they look for an adult diagnosis, well, they're looking for hyperactivity rather than mental restlessness or hyperactivity. So it's a serious, treatable mental health diagnosis that needs to be understood by all of us in a better way. So how does behavior in adults compare to that of, of kids? Well, adults learn to mask their symptoms very effectively. For example, People say, well, you can't have ADHD, or the individual can say, well, I don't have ADHD because 
I have accomplished all of these career or education or social relationship successes. But what brings them to our clinic is usually impairment. And that impairment is most commonly a mental health presentation of anxiety and sadness. They realize that they are underachieving from their own self-perception and they are running into difficulties in their life. Is it actual underachievement? Because I, you know, I, it seems to me that, that that's part of the, the root definition of ADHD in kids, that if there's this noticeable gap between where intellectually they, they should be in terms of academic achievement and where and school achievement and, and, and where they actually are, that that's often one of the harbingers or one of the, the prime indications of, of ADHD. Yes, it is. And another harbinger, to use your term, is a transition time. So as a child, the transition may be moving into different levels of education, whether it's school entry, high school, university, first job. Anytime there's a major transition, the um, skill sets around ADHD being an impairment situation become accelerated. So, for example, the majority of adults with ADHD report struggles with mood regulation. It can be misdiagnosed as depression or anxiety or even personality disorders. So when someone starts feeling that they are not achieving what they expect they are capable of, the resulting comorbidities often get identified first. For example, there are many middle-aged women particularly who may be being treated right now for anxiety or depression, but it's treatment resistant. In other words, people have tried many different medications, but it hasn't really solved the frustrations that the patient may have. The important thing here is to think, okay, are we just treating comorbidities of something else? Because if they have ADHD, the treatment regimen is different. And many individuals will come off mood-altering medication, which they no longer need because their signs and symptoms have been treated. How much of a gender split is there in adults? You mentioned you mentioned women, and and you know my understanding is that is that this diagnosis in adults and children occurs more often in in men. No, by adult it is fifty fifty between the two genders. However. That misconception may be because in children and adolescents, the male individual often presents with more overt emotional dysregulation or physical hyperactivity. We all know the characteristic impression of the little boy in the classroom who's falling out of the chair and waving a flag saying, I'm having trouble engaging here. But by adulthood, it's pretty much 50-50. What are some of the ways that adults may unknowingly cope with undiagnosed ADHD? One way might be they acknowledge the fact that they need extra time to do something. For example, an employee might say, you know, I'm staying late every night at work, but I find that as soon as the office is empty and I can do my day's work in two or three hours if I'm alone. That's a perfect example of someone whose distractibility and lack of focus 
is challenged by their working environment in a regular shift. But once they can actually tune in and hyper-focus, quote-unquote, they can achieve almost more success in a shorter period of time as a compensation. Often people will say, not only am I taking more time, but when I actually get down to do the job, I've been avoiding it or I've been procrastinating. And once I just take that first step and get going, I'm away to the races. So that's a very common presentation. Often people are thinking they're coping by saying, well, I guess I'm not very good at studying math or science or whatever, so I'm going to change courses or I'm going to change universities, change my learning environment. And they realize that their lack of ability to engage and focus follows them along. So it's that frustrating impairment piece of not meeting their own expectations when they realize they are capable of it. They just aren't able to get going the way they'd like to. So they may drop subjects. They may need extra time. They work at times uh, perhaps where there are fewer distractions and they can hyper-focus. Are there any other coping mechanisms that undiagnosed adults with ADHD may use? Yes, and I alluded to this earlier in that many people try to slow down that restless brain by, well, doing exercise, which is great, by organizing time management skills. But more seriously, when people make attempts to use mood-altering drugs like cannabis or even regular cocaine use in the backyard kind of thing, just slow down what they feel. Alcohol is another that people can begin to use inappropriately. So when they are diagnosed and successfully treated, some of these substance abuse uh, situations improve dramatically because the individuals understand why they are having the difficulties they are. There's also um, real concrete stats saying that there's compromised socioeconomic status, there's lower annual incomes, there's higher divorce rates, there's less workplace satisfaction and, and less job security. Many people will crash their cars and experience other traumas or die by trauma because of their inability to stay engaged. The biggest thing is persistent and deteriorating self-esteem. People see me as being lazy, incompetent, and incapable. And those are, those are huge concerns. It's costing society a great deal financially, as well as academic outcome and performance when individuals are not identified and ultimately treated appropriately. 
Between today's wellness fads and news about tomorrow's medical breakthroughs, it's hard to know what health information actually applies to you. Luckily, there's a podcast that breaks through the noise, TED Health from the TED Audio Collective. Join host Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter as she introduces you to leading health experts that break down the questions you didn't know you had. Will eating a plant-based diet make you healthier? How does your neighborhood impact your health? How will medical treatments change in the future? Learn all this and more on TED Health. Find TED Health wherever you get your podcasts. You're, you're painting a, a picture of people at the extreme of undiagnosed ADHD. Uh, is there something to be said for people who may have milder forms of ADHD and, and basically are able to cope, but they find that the cognitive load in keeping them at the top of their game is exhausting? Yes. And I think, you know, there's a lot of joking around when somebody doesn't stay focused or engaged. Oh, you must have ADHD. And it's trivialized in many social situations. But the impact of ADHD is tremendous. And understanding when it's present and when it's not present gives an individual very clear guideposts on how to move forward. For example, in our own medical community, there is a tremendous number of people in the in the paramedic or emergency room, for example, that will have ADHD. That doesn't mean they're being compromised by it, but they've chosen a career where they can hyper-focus when they have to. They don't have to take homework home with them at the end of the shift. They are on the moment. They are at 100% capacity for a short period of time, and then they can settle down again. So we see that career choice, for example, often being an individual who works more successfully with change, with the silver tinsel of an exciting new opportunity, not enjoying a routine, predictable, repetitive type of career situation. Ainsley, you've painted a picture of me and you've painted a picture of a lot of my colleagues and I'm not joking here. And, you know, there is a cliche about people on the front lines of emergency medicine who have undiagnosed ADHD, but you're talking about me. You know, most of the time I'm fine, but when I'm a little bit tired, sleep deprived, and of course there's a lot of that in emergency medicine, there is a particular intercom alarm that distracts me uh, in the emergency department. And particularly when I'm tired, I just can't put it out of my mind. I hear it and it just, it seizes my, my attention. So um, I suspect for a lot of people who are listening to this conversation right now, bells are going off right now. And I don't just, I mean, alarm bells, internal alarm bells, not the ones I just described. Yes. It's important though, Brian, to remember that ADHD manifests itself differently in different people. As physicians, you know, we need to welcome learning from our patients and create a safe space for them to unpack some of those feelings and ask the question, what is it that you've noticed about yourself that makes you think you might have ADHD and looking for signs and symptoms of that impairment? I think that there are areas of medicine, may I suggest, that you may not have thrived in. Certainly, I can tell you there are some in my life. But I think there are certainly career choices where people are going to excel when they have that variability, that quick response 
sounds to me like you want your emergency physician to be someone who can engage and can be focused on the task. And you don't really care if you can't have that level of commitment for your whole shift, for example. Now, you know, a lot of people listening to us are guessing that they have adult ADHD. How do you actually make the diagnosis? Tell us about the assessment. The assessment, in my opinion, requires a series of questionnaires from not only the individual, but third-party informants. Many adults will be able to bring in their report cards, surprisingly enough, even though they're in their 30s or 40s. And often there are signs, usually by the age of 11, you know, if Susie could just not fall out of her chair, if Johnny could remember to bring his books, there are early signs of just lack of focus. But when this trend is seen repetitively, that early identification of signs and symptoms is an important thing to document. At our clinic, we with our adult assessments, not only is the psychiatrist interviewing the individual, but so is a clinical psychologist and so is a coach therapist. So when those three interviews get together, along with curated questionnaires, it's pretty clear when someone has ADHD and when they don't. And there are many people who come in for assessment that don't have ADHD, And they may have an undiagnosed learning disability, for example. There may be some other medical condition that is complicating their ability to perform the way they want to. So having an assessment does not necessarily mean you're going to have a diagnosis. But I think the important thing is to have confidence in the assessment process so that the recommended treatment is not only understood by the individual, but validated by very thorough investigations. And when you diagnose an adult with ADHD, what are the treatment options that are available that are evidence-based and effective? You need a combination of pharmaceutical support often, but more importantly, you have to have coaching or behavioral interventions for the individual to deal with their signs and symptoms or their impairment. And ideally, the combination of both is the optimal treatment. I think it's very important to have an understanding of why you think you have it. If it's confirmed, what are you going to do about it? So from a treatment perspective, I think A pharmaceutical called a stimulant is a medication that has been around for decades. And all the time they're being improved upon long-acting preparations. And there are excellent choices covered by our Ontario healthcare plan or whatever province you're in that will allow an individual to feel more engaged and more a part of their daily routine. I personally think that ADHD is the result of a shortage of available neurotransmitters to the individual. So when you take a medication, you're not stimulating, quote unquote, that individual's behavior. You're actually providing 
neurotransmitters to stabilize and have them be more normally engaged with the world around them. So the dosage of medication is important. These medications are often misused or dare I say abused, but when they are correctly diagnosed, individuals with ADHD will often feel, oh my goodness, I, I feel like myself rather than an engine on overdrive. But it is possible to misuse these medications and maybe people are passing along tips to one another on the internet on how to do it. Yes. And I think that's why it, there's only a very few long acting stimulants that I personally prescribe because the ones that um, I think should be used are the ones that primary care physicians need to be informed about. And because many family doctors are apprehensive, they will try a low dose of an immediate release uh, alternative. And those are the ones that can be misused, crushed, sniffed, snorted. The long acting ones without getting brand specific are much more difficult and don't have the same interest. So prescribing immediate release stimulants, in my opinion, should never happen. And that's why the fact that OHIP is covering long-acting stimulants is just a wonderful success story. And finally, what are some of the ways that we need to destigmatize ADHD to ensure that more people receive the care that they need? Destigmatization is always a big challenge. There are still a lot of issues. For example, I think the occupational community may think that if a person is on ADHD medication, that they're going to be a second-class employee. My quick response to that would be, oh, no, find out who in your job base has ADHD, treat them, and you'll get a much better employee. But there are many adults who do not want their employers to know, for example, that they are being treated for this diagnosis. So I think that has to change. I think that there is more awareness of mental health in the last decade. I think the world is becoming more ready to see that mental health diagnoses need to be supported and opportunities like this to share our conversation, Brian, with individuals who may be suffering from a misdiagnosis or no diagnosis is very important. Dr. Ainsley Gray, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Ainsley Gray is the founder and medical director of the Springboard Clinic in Toronto. Here's your dose of smart advice. About a third of children with ADHD meet the criteria for a diagnosis in adulthood. More grown-ups live with ADHD than many other mental health conditions, and yet ADHD gets less attention from the healthcare system. In childhood, more boys than girls are diagnosed, in part because boys are more likely to exhibit hyperactivity. Girls are more likely to have inattentiveness, which is easier to disguise. By adulthood, the ratio of men to women with ADHD is closer to 50-50. Adults with ADHD often cope with difficulties at work and in their personal and family lives. Problems at work can affect their careers and their relationships. These can lead to chronic feelings of frustration. 
Some adults have difficulty focusing on tasks but remain undiagnosed because they use coping skills to compensate. Things like taking extra time to complete tasks, working at times when there are fewer distractions, and getting regular exercise. ADHD is more serious when it interferes with work and relationships, life skills such as driving, and when alcohol and drugs are used to cope with the symptoms. The diagnosis of ADHD requires a comprehensive assessment of academic, social, and emotional functioning by a qualified healthcare professional. ADHD is treated through a combination of long-acting stimulant medication, skills training, counseling, behavior therapy, as well as supports and accommodations at school and at work. Because there may be prenatal effects, you should tell your healthcare provider if you're pregnant or are planning a pregnancy and are on ADHD medications. With greater awareness, a diagnosis of adult ADHD will ideally be less stigmatizing over time. In general, the most effective way to get support at work is to tell your employer that you have ADHD. If you have topics you'd like discussed or questions answered, our email address is thedose at cbc.ca. If you like this episode, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen. This edition of The Dose was produced by Samir Chabra. Our senior producer is Colleen Ross. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. If you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.